Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Atlanta Business Radio. I'm Katie Galley, and I am joined today by our wonderful host, Mr. Corey Rick. Um, and that means it must be time for Tuesdays with Corey, right? It is, Katie. <laughs> yeah. So uh, are you excited for today's show? Absolutely. We have one of the best shows we've ever had uh, mm-hmm. without question today. Yeah. So uh, who did you bring with you in studio? Well, we have three guests today, uh, three extraordinary guests. Rhonda Caudell is an aging parent expert and owns a company called Endless Legacy. Rhonda, welcome. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me. Of course. Cody Cruz owns the fabulous Bernadette's Hair Salon. Cody, welcome. Thank you so much. And Bonnie Daniker has written several books, is uh, the owner and operator of Right Along With You, and is the president-elect of the Atlanta Association Group of Novel. Bonnie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have all of you on the show. We're going to start off by talking with Rhonda. Uh, Rhonda, you've built a great business helping people deal with aging folks and their family. Tell the listenership about that. Yeah, I'd be glad to. It's They're dealing with parents for the most part. So years ago, I worked as a nurse, geriatric care manager, worked directly with seniors, and then my own parents began to start aging, three of them as a matter of fact, and my whole world fell apart. I thought I was so smart, but uh, what I had learned in the past didn't really work with parents. So I began... What, what do you mean by that, Rhonda? Well... You know, seniors who hired me, they wanted my help from the get-go, and they were open to direction and following my advice and my recommendations. When it comes to parents, they still they still saw me as the baby, which I was the baby of the family, especially my dad. So it was like, oh, you know, I didn't really know anything, and they didn't really pay any attention. So I had to figure out how to make it work with parents. What What is different? What do you need to do different? And then I began to open up my business to other people who had the same struggles and begin to really show them how you have to shift the relationship, do a different conversation altogether. And then I added in my piece that I've known all my life about planning for the future, for the for your aging life and what it's going to look like and what what you can expect and how you build in um, staying as independent as possible because that's what people want. Were your parents where were your parents located when you were helping them? They were located here in the Atlanta area. I grew up in the Atlanta area, and fortunately, all my family uh, was in the area. But brothers and sisters, yeah, one sister I have. So, um, yeah, everybody was close. But in my past business, I always worked with people who were sometimes cross country from their parents. And now most of my business is online. It's virtual programs and everybody works. Everybody has kids and their own life. So we can really just do what we need to do with them through conference calls, video chats and that sort of thing. So it works out well. The world has certainly gone virtual, and you've built a great business uh, helping people. H- how, do you, how do you get to people and get out ahead of this issue before it becomes an issue? How do you help them plan for it be- before they're sort of knee-deep in the hoopla? Well, that's the challenge because people don't understand that that kind of help is out there. They think, you know, yeah. nobody knows my parent. They, they don't know what I'm going through. And most of the people that 
were like me, they thought they were all alone with these issues. And, you know, my parents are the only ones who do this or say this or don't do this and all of that. So if they can just reach out and realize that they're not alone, that it really happens to everybody, not that there's a cookie cutter way, but there's definitely steps that everybody needs to take to get you on the right track. Was it an advantage for you to have the background that you did with nursing and so on for what you're doing now? It was an advantage in that I knew what was coming. If certain um, proactive things were not done and preventative measures were not in place, and most people don't understand that. So those are the people that I really look for are people who care about their parent. They don't want, they're not satisfied with just waiting to see what's going to happen next, which is usually a crisis, but they're proactive and they want to be preventive. They just don't know how. So those are really my ideal people that I, I love to work with. We find a lot of times that people that are helping their families, uh, if there's any sort of geographic dispersion, that can be, that can throw, that can make it incredibly difficult right. and, and compound an already challenging set of circumstances. How do you help families that are spread out where not everybody's in the same city? I mean, I would imagine your company, your virtual company is really helpful there. Well, what we do is one of our programs, um, that I really like for people to start with if they're having trouble with the conversations with their parents and everybody's kind of dispersed, like you say, and maybe there's some family uh, dynamics going on. uh, No, families don't have (laughs) dynamics, do they? It happens, Mm. you know, it happens to the best of us. So um, that's one of the programs I like to start with. And within that program, we basically all get on the same team. We all get on the same page as to what our goal is. And then we start to figure out, well, who can contribute to reaching this goal? And everybody might have a different set of issues that they're going to address, different tasks that they will volunteer for so that there's no question about, you know, is it going to be balanced or who's going to do what? We all establish that up front so that the parent's not confused and the, the parent will sometimes play each other. And so, um, you know, that just kind of puts that to rest from the very beginning. Well, that seems like it's like it's extremely advantageous to have things mapped out before the crisis hits right. and to get out ahead of it. But so many families don't do that. And I think it's because they don't know that there's help. They don't know how to do it. And the things that they've tried, for the most part, haven't worked and yeah. sometimes ends very badly. So if they just knew that there is help, people that have been through it before and we've all learned from things that we tried then I think they would be more willing to get ahead of all of that. So there's survey after survey after survey that's been taken, that's been taken, and it asks kids, do you want to take care of your parents? And what do you think the, the answer is? Oh, I think it's no. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how do you think, it, it also seems to me that most kids, if they're backed into a corner, they will. Some of them will. Um, and it's all in the definition of, you know, we speak very broadly when we say care for your parents. Yeah. And when you say that, in everybody's mind, they have a picture. And some of it's actually doing the hands-on care. Other people may think, well, we'll make sure that they have the care from somebody else that they need because I know I can't do it for whatever reason. 
So yeah, all, managing the care yeah. instead of you know managing the plan instead of being the plan. Right. Right. Two vastly different set of circumstances. Exactly. And that's the other thing that I try to do, even in my blogs and different things, trying to get the word out, is separate between actual hands-on care, the carer, we care about them, and the overseer. As opposed to for them. Yeah. And the overseer of care. So all of that's built into the plan, and everybody can have a part to play. How do you get uh, clients? Primarily through the internet, and uh, it's through my blog post. I do, I probably have over 200 blog posts right now on Endless Legacy. I have another website that's primarily for people whose parent has some form of dementia. Uh. That website is uh, Dementia Distress Relief. So both of those sites have blogs where we try to educate the public on what's going on and, you know, how to deal and so my, my articles and my posts do get shared on social media, and that's usually what people find me initially, unless it's word of mouth. Um, in the local area, I get a lot of word of mouth because I'm a native to the area, so um, that's Well, and that doesn't nice. surprise me. You've done a nice <laughs> job of positioning yourself. You're clearly credible. You have a lot of experience, and I think having the medical background of being an RN, I think mm-hmm. is, to me, it seems useful. Yeah, it, it has been very useful, except for when it came to my parents. I thought I was so smart, and then I realized all the other things that need to happen before the medical part kicks in. <laughs> so that's my main focus with people who don't understand that. They think, oh, well, you, you're a nurse. You've done this before, so of course you know how. And they think, you, you know, I don't want to be a nurse. Well, you know, I didn't either for my parents. So Yeah, that's actually certainly people, no matter what, mode of business you're in, it seems to me that it's more challenging to do whatever that business is with your own family. Yeah. I think for whatever that does reason. happen a lot. And it doesn't matter what your credibility is. Right. Right. You've published a lot of, uh, you know, blogs uh, and publications. Tell us, tell the listenership about that and how you came to do those things, because I know your blog is extremely impressive. Well, I actually didn't start out impressive. Thanks for the compliment. (laughs) I started out with a friend that was in the Internet marketing business, and I said, I really want to reach people outside my area and, um, you know, be be known throughout the U.S. because I want to go virtual with all my programs because I know how it is that people can't even get to a support group anymore and, you know, in person. And so he, that was the first thing he told me to do. He said, you've got to create a blog. And I said, well, I'm not really a writer. I'm a talker. (laughs) Well, just, you know, talk into a a recorder and then have somebody transcribe it. So that kind of took the fear out of, I guess I really can write. And, um, and it, and it grew on me. And then as I had more and more clients and begin to utilize their words and their concerns (laughs) And their real-time problems and issues, those are the ones that I then begin to write about and offer some solutions in the article itself. And then for anybody that wanted to go for a deeper dive, of course, they can then contact me for some more programs and information. Yeah, I found your information to be very educational, not salesy. And that's to me, that's the uh, that's that's the key to, to doing a good job. And, and, and that's the key to generating interest <laughs> with me for whatever it's mm-hmm, worth. Mm-hmm. Um, you also, uh, what is your biggest challenge, do you think, in your business? Well, I think my biggest challenge is 
people automatically, they might, well, they might hear about me or they may read something, but they automatically think, well, that's not going to work for my parent. And, you know, Gee, nobody's ever heard that before. <laughs> so I know that I was kind of there at some place too, but I still, you know, kind of bit the bullet and I began reaching out to other senior industry professionals that I knew from my past and I would go to them with my specific problem. And most of them really understood it and they'd heard it over and over and over, but they didn't have a solution. So I knew that that was somewhat unique, and I thought that, you know, this is really ahead of the curve because this whole wave of aging parents is just beginning. So that was the, the main problem that I began to focus on, and it was that communication piece and that relationship piece. And um, I think people think that nobody else can help them, and so they're that maybe they're skeptical when they come to me or they're skeptical that there's even anybody out there that understands. Do you think maybe it's people being in their own heads and having experienced the failure of trying to help their family and then they just assume, all right, well, no one else can do this. If I can't figure it out, it's my family. Do you think that's part yeah. of it? Yeah, I think that's a good point that you make because I, I do. Well, every now and again, I have one. <laughs> Well, that was a good one, Corey. <laughs> they do think that, you know, nobody knows my parent as good as I do. And so I've already tried all the things that anybody else would come up with. And it, it's really amazing when I get, do get to talk to people on the phone and work with them. And they give me all the scenarios. Sometimes I even surprise myself with the answers that I spit out. And I think, oh, how did I know that? Where did that come from? And I really think it's intuitive. It's just a gift that I'm thankful for and one that I have, you know, and I don't even know half the time where I come up with my ideas, but they work. How do you have a set regimen or uh, uh, plan that you follow for blogging or do you do it so many days a week or do you do it when an idea comes in or walk the listenership through how you decide to do that? Well, most of the professionals that do internet marketing say you should blog at least three times a week. There's no way I can do that. So I try. That seems like a lot. It is a lot. And, and I just, I just couldn't, unless I had a lot of advertisers that wanted to pay me for my blogging, then maybe, but I don't do that. So, um, I try to blog new material at least once a month. And then throughout the month, I'll repurpose it in different places, maybe in a video, the same content, and then in an article or an audio or something like that. So just different ways to get the message out because certainly all the people out there, they, they receive their content in different ways. Because of the familiarity that can sometimes be the family dynamic, do you find it's an advantage for you and your organization to be sort of that independent third party that doesn't have the emotion, that doesn't have the family dynamic? That to me seems like it would be very advantageous. Yeah, it, it's interesting because there are people that call me and they say, I've read some of your stuff. I, I think you can really help me. So I want you to go talk to my parent and do ABC or get him on the phone and do ABC or whatever. And 
I tell them, I said, I'm, I'm not going to talk to your parent. I'm going to show you how to talk to them so that they listen and they respond. I and- could have used you like 40 years ago. <laughs> Where were you when I needed this 40 years ago? Well, yeah, I use the word partnership because I want them to, you know, just ditch the parent-child relationship and become mm. a partner. <clears throat> And through that partner, then you can co-create your own plan. Because even if I did go and talk to their parent, their parent's going to be so nice to me and tell me how wonderful I am and totally agree with me. And then when I leave, they're going to look at that son or that daughter and they're going to say, you sure wasted your money on that. (laughs) Yeah. You mentioned uh, your work with folks that that have dementia and dementia-related matters. Tell us about that because that's a... That's a big deal now, isn't it? It is a big deal, unfortunately, and it's becoming a bigger deal with even younger parents because I'm beginning to... How so? Well, people who are now being diagnosed with early onset of Alzheimer's or some kind of dementia, it's happening more and more to people in their 50s and 60s. So their sons and daughters are beginning to contact me or join my closed Facebook group for those people. And I'm seeing more and more people in their 40s who are looking for some support or help because now their parent has dementia and they're really clueless about what all this is going to mean for them. And it will change your life. My dad was diagnosed with vascular dementia and Alzheimer's, and I oversaw his care for eight years. And even with my medical background, it was just a one of a kind situation to me. And I think everybody feels that way. But people don't understand that you can't relate to someone with that kind of diagnosis the same way you always have. But it doesn't mean that you isolate them or isolate yourself. So if you make some shifts and some changes, you can still have a great relationship for a long time with that parent, but you've just got to change your approach. That's very crucial advice, uh, in my estimation, separating uh, the part about being a child and, and, you know, moving into the part where you're going to be a partner. I, I think that's very, very accurate. Um, people that have dementia, uh, the arc, if you don't mind, the arc of your father's circumstances, you probably helped you know, how many hours per day early on? Well, I actually lived with him for a while. Okay. He had um, a spouse that lived with him um, that died before my dad, of course. And then I, I knew he was probably in the early stages at that point, but she was there and he really didn't need a whole lot of help or direction. Well, after that, he ended up finding another woman that was the love of his life. And I'm thinking, I hope she understands what she's getting into. But um, she did, and she knew, and, and she took care of him. She loved him dearly. And unfortunately, she passed away five years into the relationship. So those two deaths caused a real problem for my dad and that he just went downhill, downhill, and downhill. So... That was a sudden death from the second woman, and um, I was actually out of town at the time. And someone that knew my dad told me about it and said, and your dad's by by himself and really needs some help. So anyway, we had to jump in and do a lot of things for him until I could get to town. And it took me a while to kind of live there with him to really figure out what he was going to need. So um, 
but then it, it was just almost an impossible situation because usually when someone with dementia has a crisis in their life, that's going to set them back and they don't regain what they had. Just begins another downward spiral. Is it stressful to be in those circumstances being the caregiver? Oh, yeah, of course it is. Yep. Loaded question. Yep, yep. It's, uh, it's pretty stressful. I do have a closed Facebook group now for adult. It's answers for adults li- with parents living with dementia. And um, we have people in there and we support one another because most of them are the hands-on caregiver, the ones that are members now, not all of them, but a lot of them are. So we give a lot of support to each other in that group. And then my role is answering questions in addition to education. How did you do, how did you decide to start your company? I mean, what was the jumping off point for you? Well, my company originally was, um, working with seniors. And then when my parents really began to have medical issues and start to decline, that's when I decided, wow, everybody I know is in this situation. I don't think there's any help for them. And so I shifted my business at that time. That was about seven years ago. You've been invited on the show because you have uh, been favorably introduced by a former guest. Uh, what separates you? What separa- separates me from the industry? Yes. I think it's... Industry, competitors, or in general. Yeah, I think it's that I'm not a done-for-you kind of service like I used to be with care management. I'm more of empowering people how to do this for yourself. This is your family. You got one shot. So you want right to do the that. best you can do. Rhonda, if you could look back and give the younger version of Rhonda some advice, what would it be? Probably slow down a little bit. <laughs> Boy, those are that's some true advice. <laughs> slow down, smell the roses, doing that. I have to make myself do that. Yeah. Yep. Are you successful making yourself do that? Most of the time. I think that came with age. And that, uh, you know, so it does come with age, it does come with age, but I, you know, I would like for it to have come sooner. <laughs> and finally, if there were a young lady that wanted to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you have for her? I think I would just say, if you recognize something that you feel like you're gifted to do and you have the desire to go for it, no matter what, there's ways to figure it out as you go. Rhonda, you've built a great company and great business. How do people get a hold of you if they want your services? Do you have an email address or a phone number that they call? Uh, my email is Rhonda, it's R-H-O-N-D-A, at EndlessLegacy.com. That's the best way to get a hold of me. My number and a lot of my free stuff is on there. Rhonda, you've been a great guest. Continued success. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Corey. Thanks much. Next, we have Cody Cruz. Cody, good morning. Good morning, Corey. How are you this morning? Good, thank you. Cody, you built a great business, uh, Bernadette's Hair Salon, and you have worked in this business since you were 18. Yes. Did you yes. start when you were three? <laughs> it was like, I was actually 19, right out of high school. I went straight to beauty school. I loved hair, worked in hair salons throughout high school, and I just knew that's what I wanted to do. How did, how did you know, though? How did you know that that's what you needed to do being? I don't know. I mean, just in, in middle school, I feel like if anyone stood still, I'd try to cut their hair or do their makeup. I mean, I've been cutting my mom's hair since I was in sixth grade. She has good hair, so it always looked good. <laughs> and you've been a business owner for how long? 
Um, it was 11 years in May. Was it helpful to work uh, for a period of time, six, seven, eight years uh, at Bernadette's, you know, as an employee? Was that useful for you to give you perspective on whether or not you wanted to own a business? Um, I, I guess so, but I don't think I really thought about it. Um, even when I was presented with the opportunity to take over the business, I, I just saw it as an opportunity and said, yes. I mean, I knew that there was an established business, which I think that really helped me be able to fail and learn and still have clients coming in and the reputation of the business. So I don't see any evidence of failure anywhere in in your company. I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky. And I I think surrounding yourself with good people, um, I think that's the secret for for my business is having great workers around you because you're only as good as your best worker. It does help. And how many employees do you have now? Um, Twelve. Twelve. Twelve girls. All girls. Uh That's not... Women. That's not a hair salon. That's an operation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How many clients do you see a month? Do you help out a month with your services? We see about 600 a month coming through there. The girls are busy. You know, we try to stay current with with education. And um, I think the, the biggest thing as of yet with the business, is moving locations. So five years ago, um, we moved the salon from from Roswell Road into Dunwoody, and that has really helped us. Dunwoody has been a great community. They're super supportive. And, I mean, you know, there's a hair salon in every shopping center. How did you decide to do that? Um Clients, you know, being a hairdresser, you always have a connection with some somebody, clients, and um, Bernadette. Bernadette is still actually a huge mentor for me. And so it it's easier to make decisions when you know you have good people to back you and that you can go to for questions. Having a mentor uh, like Bernadette, is that, how's that been advantageous for you? Um, I mean, any, she... She knew what she was doing, and she had she was successful, so I knew I could count on her um, for good advice. And she she built the salon. It was a good foundation from the beginning. It was she built it on love and on community support and giving back, and that's what it's that's what it's all about. And so I just wanted to continue that, and I think that since she established it, that it was able to stay. You know, the, 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 the love in the industry, too. Well, you clearly love what you do. I, I get that loud and clear from, from having been introduced to you by another person that's been on the show. How, what do you like best about what you do? At you- people. I love people. Um, they give me energy. They have a lot of wisdom to share. Uh, again, with moving the um, salon, I had a client who was in the real estate market. So I went to him with all my questions. I've kind of learned um, over the years, it's, it's not how smart you are, it's how, you know, where you go to for your answers to your questions. Yeah, it's okay not to know the answers to everything. Yes, yes. And I, I learned that, you know, that you don't have to know everything. I put a lot, of my pres- a lot of pressure on myself at the beginning of I don't know this, I don't know that. And I think, you know, a lot of people don't know what they're doing and they just have to seek out the right people and resources and figure it out. 
Well, I think having a trusted mentor or a trusted group of advisors that don't really have a vested interest in anything other than you doing the right thing for you is really crucial. Yes. And I, I think it's, uh, you know, having someone like Bernadette is, I mean, incredibly helpful because she's she's done it. She's been a big part of building it, obviously. Yes. And to have her there uh, on a go-forward basis is really useful. Very useful. And she even comes in and does... Um, education for us her and her daughter have a salon and so it's really neat and for the younger stylists to see that Bernadette is still a part of Bernadette's and you know Bernadette hasn't been the owner since I think like 2001 and I kept the name because of reputation the branding the branding but who she was, you know, I, yeah. I saw her. She was a role model for me. She lipstick and smelled like patchouli. So I just always, you know, loved her. And so I, I, I didn't want to change it. Well, it's a nice tribute to her. And I would imagine useful for you in terms of branding. Yes, especially with the wig studio. So she established the wig studio in 1989. And, you know, you got to think this was before, like, the Internet or anything. So if people were undergoing chemotherapy and losing their hair, they didn't know where to go or what to do. So that was, like, super um, intuitive of her to think and to see that need and fill it. And, and we've kept it going ever since. What do you think is the most challenging thing about what you do? Um, I guess it would be... I think managing people and being able just no, to... No, people are challenging? <laughs> I thought you said you had all women there. I have great women, and but you just have to go with the flow. I mean, every, every day things are going to change. You know, people have their own lives and things happen and just coming to work and everything going smooth, I'm thankful for it. You know, sometimes I walk in just like, okay, what's going to happen today? How are we going to handle it? You know, because things happen every day and you just have to be able to roll with the punches. How do you find your talent? How do you find your employees? I, um, again, through other people, other stylists that have worked there. I mean, even some front desk people that we've had, they'll still come back and get their hair down, done. Other stylists that have worked there, they'll still come in and get their hair done or their family comes and gets their hair done. So it's just like a big networking group and um, career days at beauty schools, mostly word of mouth, though. It, it's really been so sweet how everyone there's a story how everyone has found Bernadette's it seems like uh you've built a great brand and it seems like that's a place where if people were in that industry they would want to work it would be um it would be a feather in their cap so to speak well to thanks work. thanks it it's it's nice I do like to kind of keep it small just because our space and yeah, the more yeah, people, you have 12 employees that work for you you're not small more headaches this just yeah in. yeah <laughs> I guess because we're so close and we work so good together, it, 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 it really is a little family. I mean, I feel like all of us come there to get away it's, it, from our, our lives and do what we love. I mean, we all love what we do. And, and all, all of the stylists are self-motivated people. Like, it is their business, and they're super professional. They know their money. So having a bunch of alpha girls behind you is pretty cool you know they can i can make it happen. as a man i concur <laughs> what um how do you achieve balance i mean you're married you have a family mm-hmm. you have this 
incredible business. How do you keep everything straight and do that work? The thing that they refer to now as work-life balance. Yes. Do you do it? Um, I don't know. I, no, I think that, you know, when you're at home, you think about work and when you're at work, you think about home. So I just really try to be in the moment as much as I can. And Boy, that's, that's some great. And realize that it's, it's, you know, with my kids being small. Um, How old are they? They're two and six. So I'm really just trying to hold you, on you to really that sweetness. Th- you, you really know? were three when you started. <laughs> Thank you, Corey. Glad we're on the radio. Um, so we, so uh, having the girls, having the staff that I have, allows me to be with my children more, and um, being in the business as long as I have, and working as hard as hard as I have worked, I now can be with my kids. You know, I'm part-time and, and I love it. How, do, how does an, a business like yours decide what hours to stay open and so on? And, and is there any kind of logic to it or do you, is it based on your schedule or their well, schedule? I or? mean, it's kind of based on my schedule that I've had since I was 19. It was just the Bernadette's operating hours and we have stuck to those operating hours. You know, if some of the staff wants to come in early, they can come in. I trust them all. But, um, you know, we're not open on Mondays. It's a hairdresser holiday every Monday. So Saturdays are Is that are, statistically are just not a good day for... I mean, at, at Saturdays are way calmer because nobody is really? thinking that, oh, I got to get home and do dinner or get back to the office. So there's not so much energy around... Saturday appointments, they'll come in, they'll have their coffee, they don't care if they have to wait, they can read their magazines a little longer. So Saturdays are, they're busy days, but there's a different energy to Saturdays, even though they're busy. What are some of the most satisfying things about your business that it gives to you? Um, Well, having our wig studio is, you know, it's a business and it's a ministry in a way because these people are going through really hard times. Um, In the 10 years more than 10 years that I've worked there, women would come in and they would be so sick with chemo, you know, mm. so sick. that and, and nowadays, they'll come in and they've had their chemo, but they're stronger. They can go pick up their kids from the soccer practice the next day. You, you know, they're, they're, they don't lose their eyebrows and eyelashes. So it, it's seeing that um, we've evolved with medicine has been awesome, especially in the wig studio. And to see that this is a temporary solution to a temporary problem with the wigs. And that's a, uh, that's a, that's a dignity thing too. I mean, having, mm-hmm. uh, uh, my mother before she passed battled breast cancer twice. And I know that that's a, that's a big deal. It's a big um, deal. I mean, it's biblical. They say it's your crown and glory. You know, it, it, it is a big deal, big deal. I mean, even if, if you're not sick, <clears throat> you want your hair to look good. Yes. You know, if you have one bad haircut you're kind of traumatized for the rest of your life. You know, people will come in. It could be when they were 12 years old and it still sticks with them. So it's pretty interesting how it can affect your personality if your hair doesn't look good. Well, I think, you know, a relationship with your hairstylist is one of the most important ones you can have. Yes, it is. um, You know, they know what you want. You, you, You probably have people that come in that don't tell you anything and just do it because this is the way they've always done it. But, um, you know, getting a bad haircut and I've had plenty of them mm-hmm. is, I mean, it takes three weeks to respond. Yes. Uh, yes. and then people have to ask you about, you know, 
all the sorts of things that they ask you. How come you're not wearing a hat? Did you get a bowl of soup with that haircut? Yeah. All those kinds of things. Um, but uh, it's and plus it affects your appearance and affects how you think mentally. So that's a that's a really important thing. Uh, you know, relationship with a stylist. And and you have to think too. There's not a lot of people that are licensed to touch you. So you know, you have your doctor and your dentist, and then your hairstylist, and it's intimate. I mean, I've I've read that. In stages of intimacy, like you hold hands, you kiss, and you touch heads, you know, and it makes you open up more. And we're just like, hey, you know, all in your business. So I think that's why people tell us so much is because we're touching them, and not and a lot. And we don't look at them; we're looking at them through a mirror. So it's not like a therapist where you're face to face. So you, it's easier to open up about things. How would you say your business has evolved over the years? Um. I, I think that Bernadette's is it's because of the move, I think, five years ago, and, and we've grown. Um, I think me being better, you know, day to day, month to month, year to year as you a get, leader. How, how did you get better? Making mistakes and learning from them and learning from them. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the people that have come and gone from Bernadette's, I see as somebody that I've learned from, good or bad, you know, so it's. That's what it is. What would you say uh, is the differentiating point that you offer? I mean, you were highly recommended by someone else that's been on the show, and that's how people get on the show. And what sets you apart? I mean, to me, I see plenty of things that set you apart from, from the others that, that think they compete against you, but I want to hear it from you. Um, I think our Wix Studio um, sets us apart, but I think that the staff, the, the business itself, um, we're not a factory. You know, we all are real passionate about what we do and we care. And I, I really think it's, it's the staff that sets us apart and, and the feeling of, the, of, of Bernadette. Some people say when they walk in, they feel good, you know, and it's not, it doesn't feel like, oh, next, next, next person. We spend time with them and we're thorough. I mean, it's really the staff that brings it all together. It sounds like you've done pretty much everything right. And so my my compliments there. Um, What do you do with any free time that you have? Spend it with family. Spend it with the family, for sure. Even reading over your questions, it was like, what are your hobbies? It used to be shopping, but... Not with kids. I don't have time. I I never would have picked up on that. Or money. What... uh, if there was a younger lady, um, well, let me back up. What would you tell the younger version of Cody? What advice would you give her knowing what you know now? Probably not to be so hard on myself. You know, let up, say nicer things to myself. Um, You're 100% right with that. Mm-hmm. That's anybody. I think that that would be my greatest happiness, would to be nice to myself, as nice to myself as I am to other people. Well, you're clearly nice to other people. I've seen that. Thank you, Corey. Um, If there was a young lady that wanted to follow in your footsteps and follow your track, what would you tell her? I would say listen. Listen a lot. Ask a lot of questions. Um, Know that if you fail, you can always redeem yourself and um, surround yourself with good people. 
Cody, if the listenership wanted to make an appointment with you or get information on you, how would they get a hold of you? Do you have an email address or do you have we, a phone number or a website? Uh, um, you call call the front desk, 770-394-7539, or you can go online at um, BernadettesHairSalon.com. We do do um, haircut appointments online, but other color services and whatnot, call the front desk and they can answer any questions and set you up. Well, Cody, you've built a great business, uh, much success. Thank you so much for being on the show. You've been a great guest, and I wish you continued success. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Let's welcome Bonnie Daniker. Bonnie, how are you this morning? I'm doing great, Corey. How about you? I'm great. I'm sitting here talking to you. Well, Bonnie, you've had a lot of just tremendous experience here. You have an MBA. You've written books. Uh, You help people write books. Yes, I do. Do you sleep? <laughs> yes. In fact, this weekend was fantastic for that. I caught up for about three years. <laughs> no, that's the tricky thing about writing. You know, when you write and when you help people write, you can't fake it, right? Nothing gets down on the page or on the computer screen if you're not working on it. So that's um, something that you have to be very dedicated about and very disciplined about to set aside the time and really make it happen. Did you grow up here? I did not. Um, I've spent half my life here, so I feel like a native. But I grew up um, south of Cleveland, Ohio, and it was a big change moving down here because, of course, oh, the yeah. other patterns are much different. And I actually wanted that. I was visiting a friend down in December, and uh, they were playing tennis, and I thought, holy cow, I'm shoveling up there. What am I doing? <laughs> Something is wrong. So made plans to move down, you know, when I was um, single and very mobile and haven't looked back. You know, it's been... It's been a tremendous experience because there's also that wonderful Southern hospitality that still exists here that's not as present in the North. The North has um, a lot of other wonderful qualities, and I still have friends and family up there um, who I much love. But it's um, it's something that I think uh, the Southern hospitality has helped me to to appreciate both ways of dealing with people and be able to relate to them a little bit more um, in a way that they're comfortable with. So you have kind of more tools in your your toolbox to work with different people. Was it a difficult transition moving from Ohio to here? Absolutely. Absolutely. How so? Um, First of all, I tend to be very straightforward and you cannot do that. Never would have picked up on that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I remember very distinctly um, walking into a gas station and putting a, um, a dollar bill on the gas, I mean, on the countertop and asking the cashier for four quarters because I wanted to put more air in my tire. You know, they had a little machine in the back, right? And he looked at me like I was purple and green. And I didn't realize I had to say, you know, hello, how are you doing? Do you have change? Do you make change here? Would you mind? Could you please give me some some change so I could get some air in my tires because they're a little low and I really need to drive the rest of the way home. So, I mean, something that would have taken me 10 seconds up north probably took me three minutes. But I and it's not even the time. I just realized it's a different way of dealing with people. And it's wonderful. And I do it now. And when I go up north, everybody's like, oh, she's so sweet. She's so kind. What happened? Exactly. Exactly. What happened? But it was difficult to understand what the pace was. And, you know, dealing with the weather was much different when it was so hot. wasn't used to it. And then traffic. But the way um, the biggest change, I think, was um, the reception for women doing business. And I was used to that um, up north. Uh, what with, do you mean? What, what do you mean about that? The reception for women doing business? 
I can remember working part-time in a retail store and having women come in and having credit cards with their husband's name on them. And I cannot remember meeting any women in Atlanta when I first moved here who owned their own businesses, with the exception of maybe a hair salon or um, like a babysitting childcare operation. And um, up in Cleveland, Ohio, women had businesses of all sorts, um, restaurants and um, and retail shops and um, all, well, all kinds of businesses. And so when I came down here, I was, I was kind of taken aback a little bit. Like, you know, you hear the thing about uh, you're stepping back in time. And it really kind of was that. And, you know, something that I'm glad you mentioned in my introduction that I'd like to talk about a little bit today is, you know, the National Association of Women Business Owners. We're celebrating something this year that um, happened actually just before I moved to Atlanta, which was the passage of House Resolution 5050, which enabled women to have business loans. So they could also, they could build businesses, they could have their own cars, they could have their own homes. Um, But that was implemented a lot faster in the North than it was in the South. So when I just moved here, I had already experienced it up in the North, but I hadn't experienced it down in the South. And I said, What's going on here? Why aren't more women opening their own businesses and and really taking those business chances? It's because they hadn't had the exposure. You know, they didn't have someone like um, like you were saying, Cody, a Bernadette to follow mm-hmm. in her footsteps. I, I mean, who did Bernadette follow? I'm not sure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's it was it was very um, it was very hard for me to adapt for like I said the the climate, the traffic, and mostly the business because I I grew up working. I was I've been working since I was nine years old too. So, yeah. You mentioned NABO, the mm-hmm. National, National Association of Women Business Owners, and yes. you're the president-elect there. Tell us about that organization and, and what your duties are, and you've had a lot of experience with them. Yes, actually, this is my ninth year um, being involved with them. Mm. The National Association of Women Business Owners was started in Washington, D.C., and now there are chapters in almost every state. So. Um, California surprisingly has the most with 16 chapters. I mean, it's a very large state, but um, population-wise, you'd expect maybe New York or Texas to have more chapters. But we are the only chapter in Georgia. So we service Macon, we service Savannah, we service, of course, Metro Atlanta, every major um, metropolitan area, if the women business owners want the support um, from our chapter and from national. And that is a a differentiator um, between women's organizations and business organizations is that we have that attachment to legislation and to um, what's happening in Congress that helps general business and the practice of business. Okay, so things like insurance and um, advocacy and taxation, that it doesn't really matter what side of the aisle in which you sit, you're going to have to think about how you run your business and how these laws affect you running your business. It seems like NABO has done a lot of great things in Washington and uh, and in Atlanta. How many members uh, roughly do they have here uh, in Georgia? We have 2,500 women business owners um, in NABO and um, in Georgia. That's, that's great. It's fantastic. And um, we'd really like them to be a little bit more vocal and a little bit more mobile, but we're running our businesses, right? So I encourage y'all to join National Association of Women <laughs> Business Owners if, if that's something for you. Our focus is on education and, um, you know, we want every interaction with our our events to be 
educational for you, have some kind of kernel that you go home with that you can really implement in your business. So we've had things like, um, let's look at your social media presence. You know, let's look at your financial projections. Let's look at your legal counsel. Let's look at your, um, your stage presence. How do you interact with news and the media? Things like that where you want a trusted source. You want yeah. good information. You want to be able to ask questions. So my responsibility as president-elect is to interface with our national group and then also be a, um, a constancy with the other chapters to kind of be a link between them so that we have that, that kind of national network that's very active. So if someone came to me in our chapter and said, can you recommend someone in the construction industry who might be able to answer my construction questions, I might be able to say, yes, well, here's this gal in the Indianapolis chapter who I met at National. Talk to her because she probably can feel your pain and give you some great advice. So, yeah, that, those are two of my charges with the education and um, the national reach. So you have a company called Right Along With You. I do. And what we like to do is help people finish their manuscripts, right? So for years, I had a literary consultancy where we worked in nonfiction, business biography and health and wellness. And we created a lot of books and we created a lot of derivative works, which included things like merchandise and um, documentaries, uh, feature film, gaming, um, those different communication vehicles for talking about the subject at hand. Well, we really decided to downsize a little bit and focus on the writing, and we also decided to focus on not only nonfiction clients, but fiction clients and poetry clients, because there are a lot of people with really great stories to tell, whether they're based in truth or not. So fiction has sometimes gotten a bad rap about, is it as valuable as nonfiction? It is. It's fun. It's an escape. And yeah. oftentimes, good fiction is written with good research. So you can learn a lot from fiction, too. And then, of course, poetry with um, with songwriting and speech writing and greeting cards. Everybody likes a good greeting card. So, yeah, we try to really help people achieve their dreams of writing and publishing. And um, it's, it's a lovely vocation for me. So you are a writer, uh, but you also help others get their works published. It's true. So that's actually our differentiator. So there are a lot of companies who will talk about this is the way you write. This is how you should sound. This is how many words. This is who you should market it to. And then there are those who actually write. But it's very rare to have a combination of a person who can coach and write. It's the same thing as if you can coach golf and you actually can swing a club, right? So in our business... It's we, helpful, by the way, <laughs> if you can do those two things. Well, also, you know, here, here's one thing that is probably, you know, our second greatest challenge. The first one, of course, is time. Second one is, like a bad haircut, you know, like a bad caregiving experience, we have a lot of clients that have had red penned papers, right? So there's some teacher back in their background or some mm -hmm. parent that said, you can't write. This sounds terrible. This is not the way it should be. This is bad grammar. This is just an awful use of the English language. And we have to heal those wounds. Mm -hmm. There's that psychological piece to it to say, you really are a writer. You know, especially those people who work with the public who speak very well, like my, my two colleagues mm -hmm. here. If, if you can speak 
you can write. It's just a matter of changing your format. And there's a lot of wisdom that can be passed down with that. And so there's the coaching piece, which we're very effective at. It's not just me. It's project managers that work with me. But all of us are published authors. We've been there. We've had the red pen. We know how to deliver edits because we don't want to hurt. We know what it feels like to, to hurt. So we cross that line between that, um, that criticism and that constructive criticism very easily because we've been there. You've written multiple books, but the latest of which is one that's called It's In There. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. So this is the innovation, dedication, and determination behind the birth of Braco Spaghetti Sauce. And It's In There is the tagline that we use to market the product when it first came out in 1981. And even though I wasn't part of the the product development itself, I feel like I have ownership in this product. that is a great product. product. <laughs> Isn't it? It is it, a it $30 is. billion dollar product. It's, it's, when, I, when we make pasta, I, I, it's not even a question I'm going to at Prego. It's what kind? Exactly. Thank you. And, you know, um, there were... Over- I mean, are there competitors out there? There, there must be. But- no. And my husband will tell you I'm a purist. I've got it in my cabinet, too. But we're, I co-wrote with the product developer who will tell you that, and it's actually present in the book, that... Um, you know, there was tomato breeding involved to get just the right taste of tomato. And there was a, a, a long series of uh, so hang recipe on a second. formulation. They, they, have their, they have their own tomatoes. They have their own tomatoes that they... Absolutely. They're <laughs> called the C-147s. C for Campbell's. <laughs> So, um, you know, in, in early um, in early times, we wanted to make sure that t- the tomatoes were early in, um, in Prego history time, I should say. So this is like the 1960s, 1970s. You know, um, the main products that came out of Campbell's Soup Company were tomato-based. So you had the tomato soups, and you had stews, and you had TV dinners and so forth. And so tomatoes were an essential crop for that. Plus, they're based in Camden, New Jersey, which is the tomato capital of the of the nation. Is it really? It is. And um, it has wonderful, they used to say, you know, the streets bled red and the, the rivers bled red because during these 10 weeks between um, mid-August and early October, everything was blooming tomatoes hmm. and you could smell it and taste it. And it was, um, you know, I've, I've seen the tomato crops, just mountains of, of tomatoes piled on the backs of these trucks. And, and it's, it's just a really impressive operation. Of course, now they source tomatoes from all over the world, but, um, cause we need them yearly. Uh, so the growing seasons are different per hemisphere and things like that. But yeah, there are special tomatoes and there are special recipes and there are special, um, obviously ways to cook that and can that and distribute it that all leads to this wonderful product that we're all so crazy about, even it, in Italy, right? It, it <laughs> we is, sell it in Italy, yeah. It is a great product. How did you come to be involved with this book, and what's the background? So my undergrad is um, from the Ohio State University. I have a bachelor's in journalism. Oh, I know. Ohio State. <laughs> and they've been getting a that's little... A, that's a vocational school, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Agriculture vocation for certain. No, um, we... Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think you're on the opposite side of that uh, uh, UM battle, right? Ohio State University of Michigan uh, rivalry. Anyway, um, 
So my undergrad is um, in journalism, and I sit on the board for the College of Arts and Sciences, and I'm very active. I really get a charge of being involved with new programs to mentor students and um, help guide the university in ways that people can use their talents in arts and sciences mm. to give back. So anyway, um, my co-author is also on the board at Ohio State University. He is in the College of um, Food, Agriculture, and Inter- mm. Environmental Sciences, and we were connected by a college there because Bill always wanted to write the story of Prego and I was the person to help him out so um, it was a tremendous learning experience I had no idea what I'll kind bet. of science yes and he is he is such a a learned wonderful um, talented man he has over 20 patents um, in food science and um, it was it was just a, a labor of love and he did it obviously to, to set the story straight there's a little bit of, of uh, drama with with that but I do want to say the um, every book um, sale, the proceeds goes to fund scholarships in the food technology area at Ohio State. So we want to sell some of those. But I, I have to tell you a little bit of the, the drama behind the start of this, which was um, Malcolm Gladwell, which many of you know for doing TED Talks. Mm. He's a business prophet, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of him. His, um, but he had recognized someone else as the founder of Prego Spaghetti Sauce in one of his TED Talks. And the man he recognized is a behavioral psychologist who actually did work later on in the formulation of Prego mm-hmm. after the product was launched for three years. So Bill thought it was appropriate to give um, the credit to the people that actually were... Words do. Exactly. So what's really, really beautiful about this book, and and of course I'm biased, I wrote it and I I love it, but um, there are many profiles of the people that were involved. So people like Onion Mary, who chopped hundreds of thousands of bulbs of onions, and, you know, the the people that are um, uh, working with the soil, and the guy who, you know, got cut by glass when they were first trying to push the jars through the the can lines and the processing and so forth. And, you know, it's, it's really um, you know, like we've said here, it takes a village to get anything done. And this book is a, conglomer- a conglomeration of a lot of wonderful talent and care. And um, and we want to use this to um, encourage the next generation of those in the food industry to keep providing us nutritional, um, clean, healthy food, um, knowing, you know, the kinds of earth that we that we have right now, the the um, soil and environmental concerns, and we, we just want to um, keep healthy and and keep our our um, our population strong. It's a great product. Uh, uh, how have you promoted your book? So we went through a series of book signings um, early on. The book launched in October of 2017, and we were thankful, we were were lucky enough, very thankful that the university supported us with some um, tailgates with some of the football games, you know, featuring Prego sliders. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, But we just. That was a hard sell to get you. Oh, my gosh. You know, I went kicking and screaming, right? (laughs) No, but we uh, we did that, and that was really encouraging to people who hadn't even tried it before, which I was surprised at. There were some people still out there. Of course, there always are. But um, we did um, unusual recipes. We did like chicken parmigiana and then um, the sliders and, and spaghetti meatballs, um, the meatballs being the extra. But most people don't know Campbell's had a cookbook that was focused on how to better use their soups and how to better use Prego and so forth to encourage the sales of their products. So we, that's what we did. And we went on kind of a cooking tour and book signing tour 
stores. Um, and I'm still actually doing that today. So I love to go talk to some of the, um, the schools that have food tech programs mm. and talk to them about this because it's kind of a business case about, you know, how he had to fight to, to get the product out there and what kind of competition there was and, and what the results were at the end. So as yeah, we've continued to promote that here. I am promoting it today. So <laughs> I'd say, how, how exactly does, did, did you go about the book signings? I mean, did, did whoever help you publish it, do they help you with that? I mean, I know Ohio State was a big supporter, but how, how does that work? Um, it's different for every kind of book. And this book, personally, um, is different than other clients that I've had who I've helped promote their books. Basically, um, you know who the book is for. And this one has a cross-marketing potential. We've got a business office, a uh, business audience, a business um um, uh, academic approach. We've got um, those in our audience who are students, those are foodies and so forth. So we've got multiple audiences, multiple ways to reach those. And what we did is we started with the schools and the libraries. Mm. So they, that was a ready-made audience and they wanted to eat Prego and so forth. And then now... like, Are there our, people that don't want to eat Prego? There are some people allergic to tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Those poor souls. I know, right? Right? No. So, and actually, I I have great respect for those other products on the market who um, who continue to keep this food category stable because not everybody can get access to Prego. We're working on that. So, if you have to, you know, eat a competitor sauce, that's okay as long as it's good nutritionally and and you know able to to feed your future hunger. But we, um, we like to pair this with, um, Italian based events because this is really a reflection of part of our Italian heritage and also, um, the movement of women getting into business because women did not have the time that it used to take for um, uh, women, especially of Italian descent, to spend six to 10 to 20 hours on meals, right? Mm -hmm. So they would cook their grandmother's spaghetti sauce and it would take them all day. Well, they started working, they started having their own businesses and to have a product that was just as tasty, just as nutritious, just as fresh, just as wholesome as what they would have made on their own in you know, a With fraction, a fraction of, the of the time, work. right. Yeah. And work and money. Right. So, um, that was, that was really part of the revolution of women getting into business. So this all kind of ties together. It's one of our convenience foods yet. It is, it's something that is really steeped in tradition, you know, literally and figuratively with, um, the focus groups that we had for, um, Italian women coming in and tasting and bringing it home to their family and asking their family to respond to it. And some of it was not very good feedback that, you know, I learned about that they called it garbage at first in one of the early renditions because it wasn't sweet enough or it didn't have the right kind of tomato or it didn't have the right kind of onion. So um, there's, you know, we, we go to the store, we pick a, a jar off the shelf and we think, oh, there's nothing to it. You just throw it in a pot and it works. And um, there's a lot to it. I mean, there's nearly 14 years of development process um, and there are hundreds of people involved and a lot of wonderful science and technology. And it's just a really fun read. And I joke on the back where we write, um, what's in there? Well, here's why you should read it. It's got revenge, passion, sex, intrigue, politics, high drama, and accomplishment. And it really does. But I'll tell you, the sex part is just with the tomatoes. So. <laughs> well, Bonnie, you've been invited on the show by a prior guest because you stand out. What do you think makes you stand out? 
Um, personally, I get energized by people too. And I really try to be supportive of people's dreams. Uh, you know, my kids will tell you that I, as I say, I don't want to step on your dream. If this is what you want to do, let's figure out a way to do it. But let's be smart about it. And, um, and I try to bring sunshine to, um, sunshine to a room. I want, um, start the activity with a positive note because you never know it could turn bad at any moment. I know that from caregiving, I've got a few caregiving books, um, under my belt, but, um, you know, it's, it's really tricky. There are a lot of things that can bring you down in life. And, and I want to be one of those things that bring one of those people that brings you up and brings an attitude that, um, you know, supports you in what you're trying to do. Well, you definitely do that. I think, uh, if you could give the younger version of Bonnie some advice, what would it be? Um, you know, I have to, to side with these ladies here. I, I would say be a little bit kinder to yourself and, um, and get more sleep. You know, it can wait. And usually here, here's a lesson that I really learned. If you're so tired when you're doing something, chances are you're going to have to redo it the next day. So just get some rest and do it right the next, the first time in the morning. So, yeah. If there was a young lady that wanted to follow your success pattern, what would you tell her? You know, I've actually had that um, experience, which is really wonderful. I, I work with a group um, called Endeavor, and there are um, high school entrepreneurs, and some of them are interested in the business of communications, which is changing all the time with our different education needs. And what I tell them is, um, is that you have to think about what the world needs now and then think about what, they, what the world might need in the future and try to find a path between those two um, so that you, you can keep yourself on the right track. That's kind of your, your own guiding star about how you can contribute what you think the world is going to need. And um, it, that's really tricky because it's hard enough to find out what the markets want right now. But if you, if you keep in mind there's always something else you should be working for, then you'll keep yourself hustling and ahead of everybody else that's just dealing with the here and now when you're looking at the future. How does somebody go about buying It's In There, your book? Oh, definitely contact me. I'll make sure you get as many as you'd mm-hmm. like. Again, these are these are to support scholarships for the Ohio State University Food Science and Technology majors. Um, please contact me at Bonnie, B-O-N-N-I-E, at Write Along With You. That's W-R-I-T-E-A-L-O-N-G, W-I-T-H-Y-O-U. Or you can go on Amazon.com. The book, it's in there, is on Amazon. But we prefer that um, you sell it or you buy it from us directly so that more proceeds can go to the scholarship. So um, you can also go to Ohio State University Press. We are published through Ohio State University Press and find it there. So thank you. Well, Bonnie, you've been a great guest. Uh, Continued success. Another great show. Rhonda, Cody, and Bonnie, thank you very much. It's been another great day with Tuesdays with Corey. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Corey, of course, Tuesdays with Corey would not be made possible without uh, the support of the long-term care planning group. So if somebody wanted to learn more about that and what you do, where might they do that? Well, they can email me at Corey at thelongtermcareplanninggroup.com or they can visit our website at www.thelongtermcareplanninggroup.com. Thanks, Katie. Well, great. And uh, yeah, it was a great show. Thank you to uh, Rhonda, Bonnie, and Cody. It was uh, great to see you guys and we'll see you all next time on Tuesdays with Corey. (laughs) 